On today's episode, optimizing strength and conditioning into your week with Trang Yuen. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. This is a snippet from, uh, well, it's the episode from the Run Smarter podcast, and it was originally intended and designed to be strength and conditioning for runners, like at their, um, if they wanted to inc- improve their performance. Um, but I had to listen to it again, and I thought this has so many key takeaways for PHT rehab, especially when it comes to end stage rehab tips. It's almost like an end stage rehab tips episode. And even if you are down the track and managing and you you feel like you've really got on top of your PHT, you feel like you've even overcome PHT, strength and conditioning needs to be a part of your life. And so you need to know the strength and conditioning principles for maintaining a really high tolerance for reducing your risk of a flare-up, reducing your risk of um, PHT returning. And so a lot of these can really correlate and can really be um, mixed into the PHT rehab community. So that's why I thought I'd repurpose this episode. Um, Because when it comes to strength, when it comes to returning to your sport, it's all about finding the right balance, especially when it comes to end-stage rehab. Really want to find a nice balance between strength and conditioning and the sport cardio activity that you love. And so you'll find the balance within this episode. And there are some tips in here that are designed for runners. Like like I said, the episode's meant for runners. So we're going to be talking about some runners here and there. But you can just replace the, the running with whatever sport you're running, wanting to return to. And I know not everyone with PHT is a runner, but a lot of the people that reach out to me from listening to the podcast are definitely runners. And so um, it will benefit a lot of people. Next episode, um, if, if you find that this doesn't really resonate with you, maybe you're not at that end stage rehab, you're not really wanting to know about that just yet, or you're not a runner, you'll enjoy next episode because we're looking at a paper, quite a recent paper, and it's called Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy Expert Physiotherapist Perspectives on the Diagnosis Management and Prevention for PHT. And so I look forward to bringing you that one next time. It's very PHT specific. Um, It's an original. It's not really repurposed from the Run Smarter podcast. And so looking forward to bringing you that next time. But without further ado, let's kick in with Trang Yuen. I'm good mates with Trang. We've been following her on social media for a couple of years now, uh, probably about a couple of years. And when I was just chatting with her, she kind of specializes or has this niche in kind of end high-end strength and conditioning, like if you want to improve your performance. And yeah, you, you'll you see in a second when she talks about her background and her career, she has um, she does work with those elite athletes, focus on endurance athletes, but then works with anyone under the sun. And because she loves that, that end stage 
strength and conditioning. It'd really be nice to get her insight into how to optimize your your strength and conditioning throughout the week. I think by this stage, hopefully you know that strength and conditioning is good for any runner, any endurance runner to help improve performance. And if you are injured, we definitely know what strength and conditioning can do for rehab. So if you are injured or not injured, you're going to take so much away from today. We're going to look at how to integrate it within your week, how far away or how we can integrate it in with your running sessions, whether we should do it further apart. If so, how many hours? If so, what days? What exact exercises Trang recommends? What dosages she recommends? And then just a, a few couple of ways you can tweak your program if you're doing your strength training two or three times a week to improve your running performance. Um, she has some excellent insight in just ways you can tweak things here and there to optimize and get better performance, which is what a lot of us are trying to achieve. If you're not familiar with Trang Yuen, you can find her on social media. Uh, her Instagram and Facebook handles are The Motion Mechanic. She also has a podcast, The Athlete's Garage. I highly recommend if you really love her topics and you really love her insight and this whole thing around strength and conditioning, please find that podcast there. Without further ado, let's bring on Trang Yuen. Trang Yuen, I am pumped to get you on to discuss strength and conditioning. I think I've had a couple of strength conditioning episodes in the past, but it seems that when it comes to the Facebook followers and people who follow me on social media, they're constantly asking questions around strength training and trying to get some clarity because everyone has like a slightly different take and I love your work and love the the message you're giving out and the quality, the value that you're delivering. So yeah, thanks for coming on to the Run Smarter podcast. Thanks, Brody. Thanks for um, having me on. I'm also super excited to talk about this topic. I mean, it's a big, big topic of mine that I love to talk about. But also, like you said, I, I'm always talking about strength and conditioning on social media. And then I think that I've said something like 30 times, but then there's still going to be people who hasn't who haven't seen it. So yeah, definitely always great to recap and to talk about it more. Yeah, absolutely. Reiterate a lot of messages. Uh, let's start with your background. If people aren't familiar with you, can you talk about your um, your qualifications, your career and this kind of strength and conditioning interest that you have? Yeah, for sure. So, hey, everyone, I'm Trang. I started off, at the. if we go back right to the start, I actually started off as a personal trainer and I was a personal trainer even before I was a physiotherapist. So I worked as a personal trainer right through uni while studying, um, did my master's of physiotherapy. And then when I graduated, I started doing kind of both, doing physiotherapy and personal training. Then from there, went into um, strength and conditioning, which is, I guess, kind of like one area of personal training, maybe an expansion of it, where I started to actually niche a little bit more into endurance athletes, because that's what I do. That's what I enjoy. It's what I'm interested in. So yeah, now I do a combination of both um, working with endurance athletes, like so runners predominantly, some triathletes um, to help them with their injuries, to help them with their strength and conditioning. But I also really consider myself quite broad in what I do because I have a really, really big interest in psychology as well. So um, looking at that side of things to help with high performance. And I'm actually going back to uni in two weeks time now for the first time in a while. So we'll see how we go. Um, and I'm actually going to do a master's of nutrition. So yeah, I, I consider myself um, working in a quite a broad way to help people achieve high performance and really achieve their, their potential. 
it seems like you're delving into a lot of different areas that help complement one another. And yeah, the, the mindset and psychology, that psychological side of things is definitely a big factor if you're working with elite performers or endurance athletes. And then the seems like the nutrition side is just a perfect combination. So well done for continuing to um, boost your knowledge in different areas. And I'm going to start off with a, with a good question. It's kind of going to be hard to answer with a generic answer, but for a non-injured recreational runner looking to increase their performance, like I know a lot of recreational runners, that's what the goal that they have is to increase their performance. How would you typically, what, what would you typically consider a strength and conditioning program to look like, or how it can weave into their general week um, so they can still increase performance, but still maintain um, their same running mileage? I know the question is going to be, it depends for a lot of people and their goals and stuff, but just typically what would you might expect to, to have as that strength and conditioning weaves into their week? Yeah. So it's, this is probably good to start by framing that strength and conditioning. It's a, a great part of a, a runner's program. And I think as time goes on over the years, runners are starting to become more aware that strength conditioning is an important part of an overall training program. And strength conditioning is there to complement the running. So it's there as an adjunct to the, the endurance training to help in runners achieve all the different attributes that will help them thrive and perform even better as a runner. It's there to kind of work on all the missing links or all of the, the areas that endurance might miss out on to really fill in those gaps and really develop a runner as a whole. So definitely in a runner's program, depending on where they're at, their focus should definitely be on running. But then what could be good to add on is about two to three times a week of strength and conditioning training. So depending on, you know, your experience levels, but anywhere between two to three times a week, sometimes once a week um, when it comes to um, like closer to race time and stuff, but we can talk about periodization later. Um, but yeah, two to three times a week is pretty supported by the evidence to actually elicit strength gains and to be able to have an effect on performance in runners. So generally two to three times a week. In terms of timing, this is a really important topic because the the strength and conditioning and endurance training, there's a bit of an interference effect and you can't really lie. They're very different to each other. So endurance, it's like relative low intensity for long duration and strength and conditioning, it's high intensity for very short duration. So they work different things. They lead to different adaptations. So there's a bit of interference effect where they contradict each other a little bit, but the benefits of strength and conditioning outweighs those that, that interference effect. So you want to time your sessions so that they're not too close to each other because you don't want to send the body mixed signals in one um, like isolated session and confuse the body in what adaptations the body should be going through. So you want to separate the sessions as far as possible. And the general suggestions are, um, and this is in this has been suggested by Schumann and Rodestad in the textbook, Concurrent Strength and Aerobic Training. Uh, 2019, um, you should be waiting at least eight hours after an endurance session to do strength training if possible, because after eight hours, the strength um, the strength gains and the performance in that strength session is at baseline and it's at its kind of max. But if you were to do the strength training within eight hours of endurance session, so less than eight hours gap, then the performance and the strength um, adaptations are actually reduced and they're actually inhibited a little bit. 
So try and wait at least eight hours. And that kind of works well because um, people probably will train in the morning before work and maybe another session after work so that you can separate those sessions. Um, and then after a strength training session, aim to wait at least 24 hours before you do a high intensity endurance session, just because you want to kind of like have enough recovery, be fresh before you do a high intensity endurance session and perform well, do it at your max, get good adaptation from that. And that's been, um, that's been highlighted by Ronestad in a paper um, in 2018. But yeah, like kind of two to three times a week, separate the sessions as much as possible. And definitely if you're new to strength training, I'd really recommend just starting light and focusing on technique because strength and conditioning, it's meant to be an adjunct to endurance. And if you go too heavy and you pull up with too much soreness, then that's only going to impede on your endurance sessions. So start light and try not to get too much sore so that you can actually continue to have consistency in your program. Okay. And I love this because I'm going to have the, the topic of this show being optimizing strength and conditioning into your week. And that's a perfect example of how you can optimize it. If you have the availability and you have the time to separate those um, and have that eight hours away from your endurance training, then you're going to reap the full benefits because you're not going to have that interference effect and um, the body isn't going to be confused of where the adaptations can take place. And then we're splitting off those sessions throughout the week, two or three times and still implementing that with the running. If someone doesn't have that time availability where they can split off and do um, those split off that eight hours, uh, I guess if they had a non-running day, they could replace the strength and conditioning in there. And that obviously um, diminishes that interference effect. But if someone is time poor and they've got a family and they've got a full-time job and they can't separate those two or three strength sessions a week, if you do it within that eight hours, are you still getting the benefits of strength and conditioning, but just not to the same effect? Yeah. Yeah. Like you'll still, you'll still be able to get some sort of progress, especially if you're new to strength and conditioning, like you'll probably touch away and you already start to, you know, you'll, you'll get adaptations. Um, you know, it just might not be as much as if you had separated even more, but yeah, depending on your, your, um, your training program, like marathon runners are running most days of the week, if not every day of the week, sometimes twice a day, right? So then there's just not that much space in the week anymore to separate the sessions and have the luxury of doing strength training on its own. So then, yeah, you can kind of pair it up um, and then have it within that that eight-hour eight win, eight window, maybe pair it up with an easy endurance session so that, you know, you're not super-duper fatigued. Like if you were to do an, um, a speed track session and then do strength conditioning within eight hours and yeah you you'll find that your performance will be um, diminished significantly so try and like match it up so that you can kind of still have energy to focus on the strength conditioning and if it's an easy recovery run then it's kind of like yeah you'll be able to still fit that in in that eight hours perfect perfect example and a really good answer because i think trying to get a lot of recreational runners to do strength training is a bit of a barrier because sometimes they don't like doing strength training. And if you were to say that they need to be eight hours away to get full benefit, they might just have a, Oh no, I can't do that. I don't have the time. Then they're not going to do it in the first place. And I think just encouraging them to get started and everyone has their easy running days. So that's a perfect example. Most people should have their recovery days. So then we can tie in really well with, um, your strength and conditioning, if you don't have the the eight hour window, 
you can work in that that within the same kind of workout and you still receive the same benefits. So that's a really nice answer. And I'm actually impressed with the the Facebook group members and people who are contacting me and reaching out because I once thought that a lot of runners are very hesitant to do strength and conditioning, but I'm now getting a lot of runners um, recognizing the benefits and they're doing like either some home stuff or he- heading to the gym when they can and recognizing that it is, like you said, a complimentary um, thing to enhance their running because they love their running. They want to reduce their risk of injury. They want to perform and they just recognize the strength and conditioning as an important factor for that. Um, so that was great. What would you think uh, in your opinion are the must haves within the program? Like if you were to have a runner to say, um, yeah, I'm doing my strength and conditioning throughout the week to increase my running performance. What are, what's like a checklist that you want to have to make sure that they're optimizing their sessions? Yeah. So first and foremost, I'd be looking at exercises that work the relevant muscle groups or the specific muscle groups that are used in running. So of course we, the must haves are definitely leg exercises because we want to be strengthening the legs to improve performance um, and then to make sure that they're strong enough to tolerate the forces of running and to manage injury and all those things. So the main, the four main muscle groups um, used in running would be the quads, the glutes, the hamstrings, and the calves. So I'll make sure that there are exercises for all four of those muscle groups. There are a few great exercises, like say squats and lunges, where they're working like a few of those muscle groups in one exercise. So it becomes more bang for your buck. It becomes more efficient, which is awesome. Um, But yeah, definitely those four muscle groups. Calves, especially, they're the muscle group that work the hardest out of all of them again. So make sure you've got, you know, a decent amount of calves in your training. And then on top of that, the core as well. The core isn't really a primary force developer in running. You're not using your core to push off the ground or anything, but it also has a really big role in kind of being the the stem of how your body moves. You've got your limbs, your legs, they kind of come off the torso and the torso is like that central kind of grounding point of your entire body as you're running along. So you really want to um, have some sort of core exercises in your training program as well. Um, this is anecdotal. I found that doing core has really helped my running in that I feel stronger. Like I feel like there's, there's more um, kind of power when I'm running. So that's anecdotal, but I think a lot of runners say that as well. Um, on top of that, Doing strength exercises is going to be really important, obviously, strength and conditioning. Um, So going heavy, working on your pure brute strength, so being able to produce large amounts of force, but also doing some power exercises, some plyometric exercises. So not just like how much force you can produce, but how quickly can you produce that force and plyometric exercises where you're like jumping, you're hopping and you're working on that springiness in your ankles, that springiness in your calves. And you're able to um, kind of be light and springy on your feet is really big for runners. So yeah, a few, a few must haves, pretty much leg exercises, core exercises, and a few variations in, um, in how you do the exercises. Okay. Fantastic. And when it comes to the core, I think when it comes to the exercises, like for a specific exercise, you did mention squats, you did mention lunges, um, for calves, I think, you know, does, can it be just weighted calf raises? Does it need to be anything specifically? And what are your core 
exercise suggestions because if people say work out the core, we want to have some like really practical takeaways. So what might be some examples of that? Yeah, true. You don't want to um, like send the message to do like 200 sit-ups every day um, as the most uh, the most specific form of core exercise for runners. So <laughs> when it comes to calves, um, doing like heel raises or calf raises, however you want to call them, is, is a good way to go. Uh, there's two variations that you'd want to do. So heel raises with a straight knee, so a straight leg, um, and that's going to target more the gastrocnemius, which is kind of the upper part, the bulky part of the calf that you see in runners. Um, and that's really um, kind of important to do. So you can kind of do that standing against the wall. I usually face into the wall, put a couple of fingers on the wall so I'm not leaning on the wall, and then just go up and down um, onto on the ball of my foot, heel up and down, nice slow reps, roughly two seconds up, two seconds down. So that's one variation. And the other variation is actually doing heel raises with a bent knee. So I'm sure like this has been covered before, but it's like it's something that they still can get forgotten about doing calf raises with a bent knee to then target the soleus part of the calf, which is kind of the, the lower part of the calf that you would look at um, on the leg. So with a bent knee, you can still do that against the wall. So you do the exact same thing with a slightly bent knee. Or if you have the luxury of like having, you know, um, equipment or heavy weights, then you can kind of just sit in a chair uh, with, and then when you're sitting, your knees bent, put a heavy weight on your knee and then go up and down from there. Um, I don't know if this is actually evidence-based, but I find that if you can kind of hit at least um, a third of your body weight or work up to a third of your body weight in those single leg bent um, seated calf raises, then that's a good way to go to actually be able to develop good strength um, in, in your calves. So yeah, pretty much heel raises do both variations over this over the week. Um, and then when it comes to core exercises, I'm a fan of plank variations because it's a stability exercise in that it's cut, your core is working to um, resist external forces, which is kind of what we do in running. In running, we're not actually using our torso to produce movement directly, but it's actually working to kind of be a stable base for the limbs to work off. So you want the the torso or the core muscles, like the ab muscles, even your lower back muscles, your obliques. Some people might even kind of talk about the hip muscles as part of the core to be that strong, stable I guess, center of your body. So anti kind of um, anti-movement, like stability exercise. So plank variations. So plank, side plank, and there's so many ways you can progress those, those plank um, exercises as well. So you can do plank with like hip dips or plank with leg raises, plank with arm raises, bird dog, like different ways to progress um, plank exercises. Also a fan of cable or band core exercises um, because this can be done to really uh, mimic what we do in running. So in running, when we're swinging our arms, there is actually a bit of torso rotation and our, our torso or our core muscles have to kind of counteract that that rotation so that you're not excessively rotating you're still kind of having that strong um like kind of a controlled way of rotation right so with um a cable or a band if you're at home you can kind of get some bands you can do like paloff press and then variations of a paloff press um if you yeah if you google paloff press you'll you'll be able to find videos on it um it's essentially an anti-rotation exercise and then you can do kind of like oblique banded oblique twists where you're holding 
the bands or the cable and you're, you're rotating. So then you're also working that rotation aspect, which is really um, specific to running. Great. Fantastic examples there. And before we move on, you did mention strength and making sure that our, our goal for a lot of these lower leg exercises should be heavy, uh, the strength component. Most people do know the, the rep ranges and the differences between the two, but I'll come up with an example. So some people might go with really lightweight and they're able to do more repetitions and they might do three sets of 15, 20, 25. Sometimes if they do body weight, sometimes it gets up to 25, 30. And that's what we call like a high rep range. But if we work our way to the other side of the scale and really increase the weight, we can have a lower rep range where you can do say 10, 11, 12 reps, and then you're really struggling through 13, 14, um, and then can get even heavier and you can really struggle through six, seven, eight reps. And that could be um, a, a totally different focus. Um, so they're kind of the differences between the two. Where should you think someone if who wants to increase running performance should land? If they're doing their squats and lunges, what sort of rep ranges and number of sets are you recommending? Yeah. So according to the evidence, anywhere under 15 reps is considered strength and is actually um, effective for runners. So if, even if you do a set of 15 reps where you get to the 15th rep and you know, you're, you're pretty much done, you don't have that much more in the tank to keep going for heaps more, then that's actually still going to be effective for performance improvements through improving your running economy. So improving your efficiency when you're running. Um, personally, in, in my programming that I give clients, I've actually found even going to the lower end of that range is even um, still very effective. So do even doing less than 10 reps, you know, eight reps, anywhere between your five to eight reps is still um, really good. Reason for that is just when you're going heavier weight, lower reps, then you're starting to um, work the central nervous system that little bit more and you're not fatiguing the peripheral systems as much. So imagine kind of doing a set of five reps, like that's heavy and a set of uh, 15 reps, that's still pretty heavy for those 15 reps. You're not going to be fatiguing, you know, the peripheral systems, like the peripheral nervous system, the muscles as much doing five reps, just purely because it's less reps. So you're not um, work fatiguing that system as much. And then you're not kind of, I guess, yeah, yeah, pre-fatiguing the muscles that is going to um, inhibit or it's going to actually impede on the subsequent running sessions, whether it's that evening or the next day. Um, so I find that doing high weight, lower reps, even low in that range is good to avoid that interference effect and um, still get really good strength gains that way. Yeah. And in my experience as well, I did um, about 18 months of CrossFit and we were working on heavier sort of stuff. It took me about four months to get the right technique before I started trying to lift heavy. But I noticed the same thing. If I tried to do say like a five rep max, my legs were like, if I was doing a squat, my legs weren't feeling like they were burning, but I just couldn't do another set. And yeah, it's, it was a totally different experience from what I'm used to. Like usually you feel the burn and the burn gets too much or the lactic acid or whatever that peripheral mm. sort of fatigue would be, would get too much that I couldn't do another rep, but I just didn't have the power. I just lost power and didn't know where that loss in power was coming from. If someone is working in that really low rep range, so the five to eight, is that what they only should be working in or should they be moving in and out maybe like one day doing something in the higher rep ranges, then going back to five to eights? Um, what would you recommend? 
Yeah, yeah. I reckon like never any like set rules on on, on rep ranges because it's going to change over time. It's going to change for different exercises as well. Like uh, for some reason, um, I find that for core exercises, like some of the the ones I just mentioned before, like planks, for example, they work well when you do it, like you do a bit more of an endurance aspect to it. So like hold it for time instead of reps even. So hold it for 30, 40, 50, 60 seconds. um, And that works well. And then it's totally going to depend on the training phase as well. Because like, I mean, runners don't officially have an off season, but if say, if you don't have any races coming up, you might have a bit more luxury of time um, and kind of just space to work on your strength and work on technique. And then you might be able to do like higher reps and then maybe towards like getting closer to races, you might go to lower reps and um, just like kind of conserve your energy almost like don't spend too much time working um, and doing too many reps. So yeah. And lighter, um, lighter weight at the start, especially for beginners, right? Like when you're learning technique, you want to be able to have that practice. You want to have that skill practice and the more reps you do, the more ingrained that movement pattern is going to become. So then if you're like learning a new exercise, maybe doing five reps isn't enough. Maybe you want to do eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, but it's a relatively light weight because you're learning that exercise not to build strength uh, strictly, but more as a movement, um, like a skill acquisition uh, focus in, in those sets. So yeah, it totally would change. Yeah. And it's a nice segue into my next question around if someone was preparing for a marathon and they wanted to perform and they recognize the importance of strength and conditioning. Is there any general guidelines in terms of how often they should be training uh, at the start of their marathon preparation? And as we get closer to that race day, should we be changing the frequency? Should we be changing the intensity of our strength and conditioning? And um, yeah, as we, want to prepare as best we can for that race mm. so this is um this would be what we um i mentioned before as like periodization which is kind of like changing you know the program throughout the year depending on races to make sure that the runner or you as a runner you peak at the right time it's kind of like i always use afl as an example so you know if you're in australia you'll you'll get this but afl has a very clear off season it's got a clear pre-season got a clear like in season then final season right or like kind of finals um stages so then the the athletes are all going to be training in specific ways over those phases to peak at their final season or final stage um so when it comes to marathon running and this is this is a good example or even like ultra where runners are doing so much running and this is where they're yeah running for most days of the week if not every day um so pretty much you'd want to start you know if off season right even before they start their marathon program they might be doing two to three sessions a week Um, and then as you go through marathon training um, season I find that uh, like you can still kind of fit in maybe two sessions a week you don't need to be doing three anymore Uh, depends I guess depends how long your sessions are and things like that but two is a still still is a really good number to, to continue to develop strength and then as you get as you continue to get even closer to marathon um, the competition and the race, it's going to become less about the strength and conditioning and it's going to become more about the running. So at that point, you can periodize the strength training and then maybe drop back on the frequency, the volume, so that you're kind of maintaining rather than developing strength. So you might then drop down to once a week um, closer to your, your marathon training. 
The problem with stopping strength and conditioning completely, which is what some runners ask, is that just like anything, you know, if you stop running for a month, you find that you go backwards pretty fast and you actually lose a lot of that fitness. And that's just the way our body works. We need that constant stimulus to continue to either maintain or progress. So if you were to stop strength and conditioning completely for the whole marathon um, training block, which can be 16 weeks, maybe 20 weeks, then you will lose those benefits. So it is important to still do strength and conditioning throughout the, the training block, but just um, drop back on um, volume, drop back on frequency so that you allow yourself adequate recovery for your running. Um, I'd still maintain intensity, like still do heavy um, reps, still kind of work yourself. So you're still stimulating your muscles, um, but just don't do as much volume, don't do as many reps, sets, training sessions. And then that's going to allow you space to recover and focus on your running. I think it's encouraging for a lot of runners to know that you do have to work hard to gain strength. Like most people know that's where, why we have to do it two, three times a week, but a lot of people will um, be encouraged that even if you just peg it back to once a week, you're just maintaining the strength that you've gained. You're not losing anything. And that might be um, yeah, encouraging enough for people just to be consistent and keep up with that once a week, because you know, it, it works you work hard to build up your level of fitness. You work hard to to build the levels of strength and running fitness and anything to to lose that fitness. You want to try and hold on to that that hard work that you've put in. So once a week is very good. Would you recommend dropping down to once a week, like six weeks before the marathon, or like even closer? What what time frame should we be backing off? Yeah, I reckon around that 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 um, kind of time frame is good. Everyone does things differently. Like I, I know some runners who are still doing twice a week right up to their marathon, but they were then not doing, you know, such heavy leg work. They were maybe focusing more on their core or their upper body, maybe just like kind of some lighter legs. But yeah, I think kind of dropping between four to six weeks out from a marathon to once a week is a good idea. The only, um, and this is also from anecdotal experience, if you drop back to once a week too early, um, then you might get to the point where you're like maintaining strength, but you're still kind of like, you're just on the borderline of maintaining. So once a week, you get to that one session a week and then you do these sessions because your body's less used to it because you're doing it you know, only once a week, you're pulling up even more sore from your strength training sessions. I don't know if you found this Brody, but um, like I definitely did when I was doing once a week, I think I did once a week for maybe like six months once, but every session I was just pulling up super sore and it was kind of putting me out of action almost for up to two days afterwards. So then I found it was actually the consistency in terms of not pulling up as sore and being able to run every day after was actually better when I was doing two sessions a week. What's your experience been with that? Yeah. I think every time that I do a strength session and if I introduce something new, I'm sore for days and it's, I, I don't know if I experienced Dom's more than the regular person, but I, I'm knocked out for um, two or three days. If I just started doing weighted lunges, maybe like maybe five weeks ago, I'm like, yeah, let me start working on strength and conditioning. So I got some heavier weights to start doing lunges and my quads and uh, my hamstrings and my glutes were sore for probably four or five days. And if I was to do that once a week, I think I would probably not adapt as quickly. And now I'm, I've been making sure I'm doing that twice a week. And I even just realized three days ago, I bumped up my weights to like considerable amounts because I wasn't getting the same amount of DOMS and I'm still doing twice a week, but still 
working at a higher weight and I'm not getting the same amount of DOMS. Um, so I guess I'm adapting quicker and which is the perfect, like the perfect realization when it comes to optimizing strength and conditioning, the topic of this podcast, but um, trying to optimize, you're just adapting quicker and you're getting stronger quicker so that when it comes to that top part of the, I guess, when you're preparing for the race and you're looking at that top performance, when you back off, you've got a bigger buffer and you're kind of stronger and you've, um, you've adapted more to that strength and performance. So I guess that's, yeah, in my experience as well, it makes a total, total sense that you would try and build up that frequency. And then if you have, um, if you back off to once a session and you finish, you back off to that one session with a massive buffer and you're just a lot stronger, you're not going to, decline you're not going to decondition at the same rate it makes a ton of sense and i want to challenge you with a, a question if someone is already doing all this if someone is a runner and they're doing it twice a week and they're doing their squats lunges calf raises um, at a good rep range but they still want to tweak their performance they still want this like specialist knowledge just to try and get a little bit more of an advantage and optimize their strength just a little bit more. Do you have any recommendations of how they can slightly tweak their program in order to receive benefits? Yeah, this is, this is a, actually a fun question almost because in terms of strength and conditioning, you know, the foundations are important, right? Like doing the foundational strength, you know, doing foundation exercises, working on your base, but then the fun comes in when someone's already doing that for a while and then you can start to get creative with the program a little bit more and start to progress in some more, you know, fun ways. You don't have to get to the point, by the way, it's probably worth pointing out. You don't have to get to the point where you're like, you know, squatting on a Swiss ball while juggling some balls and balancing like a weight on your head or anything like that. Like you don't need to get that fancy um, because then that becomes no longer, you know, that, uh, that specific and effective for what all you're those Instagram achieve. videos and all those TikTok videos <laughs> of like, do I need to get to that stage? Yeah. Here, here we are saying you don't have to, but I think the first one is one I already mentioned, um, and I know you've spoken about this in previous episodes as well, is if you're already doing strength training, just make sure you're doing some power exercises and some plyometric exercises as well. Because if you're um, missing one of those three, then that's a very, I guess, um, obvious or it's a very good way to, to start to progress or tweak your training program more. So just like to, I guess, to summarize real quick, power exercises, is doing the concentric phase, like doing the contraction phase fast rather than slow. So with a squat, for example, you go down, you come up. On the way up is when you're contracting your muscles, right? That's when you're working. On the way down, you're still working, but you're assisted by gravity. So you, it's the, it's going up. That's generally the harder phase. Um, so for strength, you might do relatively heavy weight. You go down and up at a consistent speed. For power, you'll just drop the weight a little bit so that you go down and then on the way up, you you explode up as fast as you can. Now you're working on your rate of force development, your how fast you can um, produce that force. And then plyometrics is kind of that um, stretch shortening cycle that I mentioned before, like working on the springiness. So doing jumping, doing hopping continuously. Think of skip rope where you're kind of just like springing like just on the ground, like kind of just like skip, skip, skip and continuing to spring up and down and working on the stiffness of your muscles and tendons. So making sure that you're doing all three of those. Um, some other 
some other areas are um, kind of varying up your tempo, so slowing it down, increasing the the speed, or even and even adding an isometric pause um, in the rep. So like think of a squat where you go down. And instead of just going down and straight back up, you might hold at the bottom for two seconds. Now that's an isometric pause and that's that increases time under tension. It forces you to brace um, kind of your core muscles even harder because you're at that bottom, um, that kind of the dark spot at the bottom for even longer. Um, so that's a really good way to challenge the body more. You can even reduce the stability of the exercise. So Imagine doing a squat on the ground versus doing a squat on like a, a, sta- a surface that's a little bit unstable, right? Suddenly your ankles have to work harder because all those ankle muscles have to overcome kind of an unstable ground. Like, And by unstable ground, I'm thinking of maybe like a BOSU ball or like even think about standing on a trampoline, right? The ground's moving underneath you. So then your ankle muscles have to suddenly work harder. Therefore, your leg muscles have to work a little bit harder. Therefore, your core muscles have to suddenly start working a lot harder. And there's a lot of different ways you can reduce stability. You can go from double leg to single leg. So instead of doing a double leg squat, where you've got two feet on the ground, you go do a single leg squat, where now you've only got one leg on the ground. And we know that standing on one leg is less stable. It's um, harder to balance than two legs. And then that's also going to be more specific to running because in running, we're always only on one leg at a time. You can even change weight positioning um, and that's going to reduce stability. So think about doing a squat with the weight on your chest. The weight is close to your body. That's cool. It's, it's, um, it's, it's stable in a way. It was as stable as it gets because the weight is as close as it can get to your center of mass. But imagine holding the weight out in front of you with your arms completely outstretched or the weight above your head now. And then now you've got your arms involved and your core has to work even harder. I always use the example of shopping bags. Like think about the last time you went to the grocery shops, you had two heavy shopping bags. Um, you're going to hold them right by your sides because it's closer to your sense of mass. It feels lighter when it's closer to you. No one's walking around. And I'm this. Uh, I guess this is a podcast. So you might not be able to see me, but <laughs> no one's walking around at the shops with their weight, like with their shopping bags, with their arms outstretched, you know, to the side um, with their shoulders at 90 degrees, because that's going to, it's going to feel heavier. The core has to work harder. Um, So yeah, putting the weight further away from your center of mass is a good one. And I might add one more. If, If anyone's on the ball already doing all those things, something else is just change the type of weight that you're, you're using. So, um, a dumbbell, for example, is a certain type of weight where on the way down, you're assisted by gravity. On the way up, you've got to kind of, it's got to overcome gravity. Um, and then it's kind of like a relatively constant resistance. But if you use like bands and you do the exact same exercise, but you use bands instead, then on the way up, so think about um kind of a band when it stretches, the more it stretches, the harder it is to continue to stretch it. So then the the resistance is going to change through the range of motion, which is going to challenge you in different ranges of motion, which is a good way to train your body to be strong in different ranges of motion, right? So with a, think of a bicep curl, I think this might be easier to envision. Um, bicep curl with a dumbbell, probably the bottom half is the hardest. So from you go when you go from the bottom to halfway with the dumbbells, the hardest and the top half is a little bit easier just because like the lever arm starts to get shorter as, as your forearm kind of curls up. Um, but with a band, 
the bottom half is going to be easier because the band isn't even stretched that much yet. And then as you continue to curl up to the top, it's the top half that's going to be um, more challenging. So then you're just kind of like filling in those gaps once again. Like you're filling in um, the areas that you might not have been working with a standard dumbbell. And then now you're working strength in different um, ranges of motion. So a few different tips there. Yeah, tons, tons. And I want to unpack a couple of them because that just the reiteration can be really impactful for the listener. So I think tempo is something that people don't consider when it comes to if they're doing squats, lunges, that kind of thing. Um, Deadlifts would be another good one. But when it comes to adapting muscles and tendons for um, producing force and just the tendon adaptation, I think that slow eccentric phase that you're talking about followed by a fast concentric phase has been shown, like when you talk about that rate of development, shown to adapt the tendons and the muscles a lot um, quicker. So perfect for runners who have to constantly have that force production. So it might just be as simple as slowing down that eccentric phase. If we're thinking of a deadlift when the weights, when the bar's still at the hips, if you did, when you're going down in the deadlift phase, slowing that down a little bit more, maybe by a couple of seconds, but then on the up phase, trying to make sure that there's a little bit quicker and there's a little bit more power involved in that. And that might involve reducing the weights to start with and then working on a bit of power to see that the body can adapt. Because if you do that same amount of weight that you usually deadlift and you try and do it a bit quicker, that is an enormous um, ton of load that you're probably not used to. So just be careful with it. Um, so that's just a really nice little tweak that someone can do. It's just changing their, the, their down phase and their up phase. And then you also mentioned the single leg stuff. And I always recommend someone have incorporate some kind of single leg work so that they can isolate or identify if there's any differences from right to left. And I think if people do a lot of double leg stuff, if they do a lot of double leg, say squats, they can get away with a, a few like weak links or any like missing, um, yeah, a few like a weak knee or a stiff ankle or something, they get away with it. But there's nowhere to hide once you go into single leg or once you go into barefoot single leg and like there's really nowhere to hide. They can work out, oh, actually I have poor control. Like I'm losing balance all over the place on my left, whereas my right feels a lot more stable or I feel like I have more power on the left. I can do so many more reps and I feel like I have that um, that control where it's just not, it's not existing on the other side. That could just be uh, that can highlight a lot of um, weak links for a runner. So always important that we do some sort of single leg work, very important. And then that pause that you're talking about at the end or halfway through that movement. So if we're doing a squat at the very bottom of the squat, I think when people go through the movement, they don't recognize the importance of like if they don't pause, they kind of have like a little bounce or a little recoil that makes that coming up a lot easier. Whereas if you try and do say a push up where you start at the top and then you quickly do a push up, if you try and do that same thing where you don't have that recoil at the bottom and you go all the way down, you pause for a second, then you come back up, you find your muscles working so much harder because they need to regain that momentum. And that can be just a little tweak that you can do in order for the muscles to work harder. So really love those, those tips. We were talking last week um, when, after I was interviewed on your podcast and you were mentioning something around the feel of a muscle and whether we should be feeling for burn or we should be feeling for a muscle activation. And you had a really nice take on it and a really nice, I want to hear your opinion and share it with everyone else. Um, When we're doing our workouts, 
and we're doing our squats and lunges and calf raises, what's our ideal aim? What should we be recognizing? Should we be feeling exhausted by the end? Should we be feeling a muscle burn? Um, what are you educating your clients to, to feel during the exercise? Yeah, this is probably a good one to talk about because this is going to be real practical to, to remember for, for runners doing their strength training. Um, a common question that I get when I actually start with a new client is I haven't been getting super sore after my sessions. Like, is it is the strength training working? Am I even getting stronger if I'm not getting sore? Um, and the, the answer to that is you don't actually need to be getting sore. You don't even necessarily need to be feeling the muscles burn like you said before Brody like when you're doing lower reps you might not even feel that burn like if you do an exercise for 20 reps by the end it's like burning right but if you do you know five to eight reps you might not even feel that burn so then you know the question is what are you even what are you even looking for when you're doing these exercises um so first and foremost the the main thing that I would look at is good clean technique and controlled movements um so clean technique, make sure your technique is uh, is kind of controlled. You're not really bouncing or trying to kind of yeah, spring up and you're not kind of all over the place. And this is where it gets a bit more complicated because sometimes it's really hard to learn technique and get it looked at when, when you're doing it on your own. Um, but that's going to be the most important thing because if you're doing good technique and you're doing the movement in a controlled way, then you will be, whether you feel it or not at the time, um, the, the muscles will be working. Um, sometimes you don't even feel the muscles at the time, but then the next day you actually feel the DOMS. And that's just a, that's just an example of showing you that you might not even need to feel it at the time for that muscle to be working. And sometimes like you, yeah, sometimes you might not even feel the muscle working, but the, you're still able to do the movement. Like think about doing a squat. If you're doing a squat, you go all the way down, you go all the way up, you don't feel the quads working, but you you had to get up, right? So the muscle had to work to get you to overcome that weight. Um, and same goes for any other exercise, whether it's like planking, um, kind of hip bridges, calf raises. If you're doing it, then the muscle is going to be working. Um, the other thing to look out for is just the fact that total workload, so the total amounts of like sets and reps that you do times the, the weight that you do is going to be the biggest factor for how much strength you gain. Um, there was a really good study that I actually uh, looked at when I was like studying and like at uni that looked at um, two training groups. Uh, one training group did eight weeks of training with an initial kind of damaging bout of exercise. So they purposely tried to cause muscle damage. The other group did eight weeks of training but in the three weeks prior to those eight weeks, they slowly built up and it was like a slow, gradual ramp up protocol. So over the, the eight weeks, both training groups did the exact same amount and total workload of training, but one did damaging exercise and the other one did non-damaging exercise. And by damaging, I mean muscle damage. So in terms of like the, the structure, you'll there would be damage to like the you know, extracellular matrix, there'll be damage to the muscle fibers, there'll be leakage of inflammatory, like proteins and cells like into the blood. And then they, they feel that burn, they feel the muscle soreness. So that's what I guess we'd term as muscle damaging type exercise. And that usually comes from doing yeah, high reps, like going to failure, like really smashing yourself, right? Um, but at the end of the eight weeks, like the surprise, uh, surprisingly almost, both groups achieved the exact same amount of strength 
and both groups achieved the exact same amount of muscle hypertrophy, so muscle growth in size. So that just shows that what was previously believed to be the mechanism for strength, like muscle damage, getting sore, like burning muscles is not actually the mechanism for muscle strength. These both groups achieved the exact same results, but one group did it more slowly without getting super sore and the other one got really sore. So yeah, class, really good example. If anyone's interested, the, it, the paper's called Flan, uh, not called Flan, it's by Flan et al. It's, it's from 2011. Um, I can't remember the exact name of it. We can put it in the show notes if, if you guys are interested. Um, something about, yeah, no pain, no gain. I remember that was in the title. Um, but yeah, you don't have to necessarily be super sore. You don't have to feel the muscles burn. You don't have to smash yourself and go to failure. Um, but you can still definitely get strong. And awesome. like we were saying before, because you guys are runners and running is your focus and you sh- and you want to have enough energy left over for running, you should try to actually not be getting super sore after your strength sessions. Good point. Very good point. Um, we did mention plyometric exercises and I just want to have a quick answer, maybe two or three examples of your favorite plyometric exercises. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, pogo jumps slash pogo hops. So it's kind of like skip rope, like just like constant, um, constantly jumping. I think that's a really good starting point because it's relatively like, it's not really maximal. Um, it's not, it's like kind of a relatively safe one to start with. Um, and then I also like depth jumps or depth hops. Um, so that's where you start on a step or you start on a box and you jump down and then you, when you hit the ground, you bounce straight back up again. So then you go, you do an initial jump and then there's a rebound jump as well. And the main thing you're looking for is how much time you actually spend on the ground. You want to spend as minimal time on the ground as possible. And then on the rebound jump, you want to get as high as possible. So two different things that you're looking at. I reckon those are those, are, those two are two classic ones that I give. And there's variations to each of those as well. Because you can start to vary the height you can start to even use weights. You can start to add kind of multi-directional plyometrics. Like you can start to jump or hop forwards, um, jump or hop sideways. And yeah, there's still there's so many different variations of those. So those are the two main ones that I'd use. Great. And I think even if people are doing this at home, I think like a skipping rope is nice just to have that constant um, recoil and, you know, in that skipping action, which is working the calves, which we have already illustrated is very important as well. Um, from the, from a listener, Steve, he asks if you can't get to the gym at the moment, um, and you wanted to start some strength and conditioning at home, what, in your opinion, what is the most efficient minimalist starter kit that someone can have at home where they can reap the benefits of strength and conditioning without having to buy a whole bunch of equipment? Um, what would be your advice? What would be your opinion as just like a minimalist starter kit? This is a real relevant question. I don't know if Steve, was it? Yep. I don't know if Steve's in Melbourne, but this is so relevant because over the last six months, gyms have been closed um, due to the pandemic that we're in. Gyms are opening again soon, which is very exciting. Um, but yeah, we've all had to really deal with not having the, the abundance of equipment that a gym would provide. So for beginners and most runners, you can if you're training from home, like you can actually make do with not even that much equipment because look around the home and you'll find that you have different things that you can play with. Um, I always say a, a backpack with textbooks inside of it 
you can easily build up a decent 10 kilogram, 15, 20 kilogram weight already. Um, I know I've always got heavy 15 kilogram rice bags at home. So there are ways that you can kind of um, like get creative at home. If you do have a bit of like, um, if you do have a budget to get some equipment, the first thing I'd suggest is micro bands. So like kind of the small loop bands or resistance bands, like the big loop bands. They are so um, versatile. They're light, they're portable. You can bring them out to the playgrounds. You can kind of take them on a plane even. They're so great to, to use. And they're, in terms of financial investment, they're, you know, the one of the most like kind of easy ones that you can get. Um, if you even have a little bit more of a budget, the next step would probably be, I reckon, adjustable dumbbells. Um, a, a whole set of dumbbells from zero, well, not zero kilograms, that'd be air, but one kilogram up to 20 kilograms. That can be oh, like a lot of weight, a lot of space required, a lot of money required. But um, dumbbells these days, you can actually get adjustable ones where you have one dumbbell, you can actually adjust the weight and change it from anywhere between, you know, four kilograms up to 20 kilograms. I've got those at home. You, you just got two dumbbells, but they're adjustable. Um, they're a bit cheaper. They're more kind of tight um, space, like efficient. They're not taking up as much space. So that would be the next one I'd go for after the bands. But I'd go bands first. They're super good. Yeah. And if the overall goal is for strength, like obviously with the bands, you don't have a lot of weight, but you can get some, like I said, a backpack books and that sort of things, but bands can be really nice for power as well. They can, if you get a whole bunch of bands, make sure they're strong enough. But if you do say crab walks or like jumps with a band around the knees or ankles and that kind of thing, that integrates a lot of power, which is the, another component that we need in our strength and conditioning anyway. And yeah, I love if we're going on the minimalist side of things, just adjustable weights, because once you have some dumbbells, you can use that for so many different things. You can use them for lunges, calf raises, squats. And uh, yeah, you've just got them. They, they tuck away regarding space. It's not like gym equipment where you have um, taking up a lot of space. It could be tucked away really neat, nice. So perfect. Yeah. yeah. And we mentioned skipping and ropes as well. Yeah, skipping ropes a good one. And um, yeah, like I think because we've been in Melbourne with this lockdown, um, like you can get really creative without weight. So I, I mentioned that before, but some examples are kind of doing like single leg exercises, like single leg squats, single leg hip bridges are pretty challenging without that much weight. Um, even like Nordic curl, um, like reverse Nordic curl, like the Copenhagen adductor exercise. I know these, I'm just rambling off names, but um, if, if you Google them, then these real, they're like a relatively advanced exercises that you can do without weight. Um, so yeah, heaps of, um, heaps of ways to get creative. Yeah. Very nice. We've covered so much. We've looked at uh, like the frequency intensity, what we should be including within our strength and conditioning, our must haves. We've looked at like periodization when preparing for a race um, examples of the particular exercises um, I wanted to challenge your expertise one more time and come up with your, in your opinion, if a recreational runner wants to optimize their strength and conditioning, perfect for the title of this episode. Uh, if there's something we haven't discussed on the podcast just yet, or if you want to reiterate one that we've already discussed, cause I know I've covered so much, what are your final three tips to help optimize strength and conditioning for a recreational runner? Yeah. So 
because we're talking about optimizing strength conditioning and we've already spoken about so much today, I'm going to kind of leave all the really obvious ones like on the table. And then I might talk about like some other ways you can really kind of step up your strength conditioning game. So the obvious ones would be like, you know, be consistent, have good technique. I thought I'd slide them in there. But um, actually the first one is one I've already mentioned. And I really want to kind of emphasize that is to do heavy strength training. So heavy strength training, high weight, low reps, but also make sure you're doing at least some plyometrics and like a bonus is doing power exercises as well. Think of it as three separate categories. If you can be doing all three kind of spread across the week, then you're going to really be covering all the basis for your, your strength. Um, the next one would be to challenge your body and movement instead of just doing straight line exercises, like instead of just doing squats or lunges, um, hip bridges, calf raises, where you're facing forwards and you're moving forwards and backwards or down and up, that's sagittal plane, so straight line, start to add some multi-directional exercises like side to side. So in the frontal plane, like side lunges, crab walks, you know, um, hip abduction exercises, uh, hip adduction exercises. So where you're going side to side, which is also an important part of improving kind of the 3d strength of your body and the stability from all directions um so that's side to side but also maybe some rotational exercises as well um i mentioned rotation through the core or the torso before during running so make sure you're doing some rotation like um what like russian twists band oblique twists um you can kind of do like rotations like with a medicine ball kind of throwing it rotating through the torso that's a power exercise as well um you can do yeah power press which is anti-rotation and even just do two in one so you can do squats lunges and maybe at the top of each rep or at the bottom of each rep before you go on to the next rep add a rotation through the, the torso um, keep your hips square, but twist your torso to the left and the right. And then you're, you're getting two in one. So yeah, instead of just doing statutory plane exercises, do multi-directional exercises in multiple planes of movement. And the last one, one we haven't really spoken about so much today, um, but I know has been covered before um, on the podcast. I'm sure um, Brody will be able to point you to which episode would be the basis of this, but really focus on targeted strength training and going into range. So you're getting strong in all ranges of movement and kind of do that almost in place of um, excessive stretching and foam rolling and letting go of the idea that you have to do so much of that where targeted strength training into range can be just as beneficial um, for the same benefits, but more effective because you're getting multiple uh, like multiple benefits out of it. Like you're getting strength and flexibility out of these exercises, you're getting stability out of these exercises. Whereas say for stretching, you might only be getting flexibility, but not the other things. So it's just like more effective, more bang for your buck. Um, but yeah, I know we haven't spoken too much about stretching, foam rolling today, but I know, yeah, in previous episodes, you, you probably would have covered that. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you've nailed it. Like if we're going through our exercises through range, then we're improving our flexibility and like our functional movements. And uh, yeah, you, it's bang for your buck because you're addressing your strength at the same time. Brilliant. That's a perfect way of ending the podcast. And, and before we go, and if people are loving what you're saying, and I highly recommend people going to your podcast and your, your social media accounts, can you just maybe give them um, a bit of direction where they go for the Athletes Garage podcast, um, where they can find it and your other um, social media handles? 
Yeah, for sure. So the the easiest place to get me or find me um, where I'm most active is uh, on Instagram generally. So the at the motion mechanic. So all the one word, the motion mechanic. Um, and then the Facebook's the same name. Uh, you can send me an email if you'd like, if you've got any specific questions. Um, and that's trang at the motion mechanic.com. Um, and yeah, like Brody mentioned, I've got a podcast as well called The Athletes Garage. And um, yeah, keep your eye out because Brody, I did interview Brody last week. So um, we did a really great episode as well on that. Um, but yeah, a few, a few places if you, if you do want to get in touch. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.